amazing week. Honestly, it was, it was a good week. It was a difficult week this week. There was, um, I, I got healed as well. I was sick in bed for, um, uh, sick on the couch on Monday and then sick in bed. Uh, well, got up on Tuesday and then sick in bed all day on Wednesday and had to do a leaders meeting that night. So I took a bunch of cold medication and uh, put on my mask and, and had to go and do the leaders meeting, staying away from everybody. I knew it was just a cold, but didn't want anyone else to get sick. And uh, while we were, Greg was sharing the testimonies about Glenda getting healed in that meeting and, and other people getting healed. And we were like, okay, we're going to pray for healing. And, and, you know, typically I'd be like, it's just a cold. I'm not going to say anything. But I felt God go, say something. And uh, I did and went home that night, slept amazing, and it was fine ever since. And uh, I love testimonies like that, and I can't wait till we have testimonies of like, yeah, that cripple was healed and that blind man was healed because those are the, the testimonies we see in Scripture, and that's the power of God working, that, which is not to minimize any of the things that he's doing, but we, we say for the more of what God wants, we, we want to see God doing. You know, the, the same things that Jesus said, that what you see me doing, you, you will do and even greater things. And that, that that would be what we would believe for our walk with God. That our life with God would manifest in that way. And so, yeah, you know, my message today, Kiro, the title is A Radical Decision. That's a short one, a longer one, a radical decision to follow Jesus. And yeah, this week I dealt with being ill. I dealt with, you know, the ramifications of what happens when, when leaders abandon a church and the, the, the devastating effect that has on people. I dealt with the death of a young man that I'd known for 20 years. And... Um, as well as the amazing things of watching God move amongst our leaders and watch God heal me and watch and get the privilege on s Saturday to pray with, with just amazing people in the Alpha program. I was just blown away by what God was doing. And, you know, just watch God touch and move and empower people. And as Lee shared, the privilege of being able to sit there while someone gave their life to Jesus and participate in that process. And you know, it's the, the highs and lows of, of, of life. But it reminds me of, of, as I went through all of it, and last night as I was sitting reflecting on, on things and reflecting on the week and just preparing, you know, some more final things for today. Just the, the reality of the privileges and the pain of following Jesus. And it is a radical decision. It's a radical decision that we make. And as we're on this journey that we you know where we're talking about the rhythms of life and right now for the month of December or <laughs> November, we're not there yet. The month of November talking about the importance of us being with Jesus. That it starts with a radical decision. It starts with a decision where we, we make that decision to follow Jesus, but it's not just a it's not just, okay, I want the privileges of Jesus in my life. It's, it's this thing of I'm exchanging, you know, the way of the life of the world for the way of the life of God. And it is a radical decision to follow Jesus. And for those of us here that maybe have been walking with Jesus for a long period of time and, and we've made different choices around the room, there's a call that God's making to all of us today of, an, of a renewed call of follow me. Follow me. 
And so as I'm speaking today to you online and to those that are here in the room, I want you to listen for what God, where God is calling you to, to, to follow him. Different areas where he's saying to you, I want you to follow me in this. Because the, today I, I speak of this radical decision that we need to make in following Jesus And it's this move away from a life of self-centeredness and independence to a life of dependence on God and love-centered life, thus dependent on others. You know, we live in a society that celebrates demonic oppression as freedom of expression. Kind of Steve Furtock-worthy quote there, isn't it? Yeah. You know, we live in a society that celebrates demonic oppression as freedom of expression. We live in a society that Satan is in control of. We're in this world, but as followers of Jesus, not of this world, we, we need to live differently than the way this world lives because it's under the control of the evil one. You know? The Bible tells us that. You know, we are not living in the new heaven and the new earth. We're living in this world that is very much demonically oppressed and controlled. And yet, we as followers of Jesus, we have to follow this one vision that God has. There's only one vision that he has for this world and for us. And it's a world united under Jesus, a world that is based on love, that is based on relationship interdependence with one another and and love for one another it's one that uh, world where people are not looking out for what's best for me but it's going what is what is best for us all not a world of political communism or socialism but with values and principles of a people that have said i do not live for myself i live for my lord and because i live for my lord i live for for everyone around me. My life is a living sacrifice to Jesus. And that living sacrificial life comes out of, first and foremost, our dependence and our surrender to Him. Our surrender to Jesus. And part of this radical decision that we make as followers is to say, okay, you know what, I have to reorder my priorities and I have to reorder my time so that I actually have time to be with God. Because Jesus only did what his father was doing and saying, and the life that he modeled out for us was one where he took a lot of time to know what his father was doing and saying, so that before he did it, he knew what he was he was supposed to do. And we can't live as followers of him if we're living independent of him, just going about trying to guess what God is trying to do. For us to truly live dependent on God, to be interdependent with Him, united with Him. We live in this, this, we've got to make decisions that give us the time to know what God is wanting to do. To be connected with Him, to be listening to Him, to be prioritizing first and foremost time with Him before we do anything. You know, radical, this word radical, the definition of that word is, you know, there's, there's two different definitions, and we, like a, a lot of words in English, which make it really confusing for people that are trying to learn the language. You know, but the definition that we're working with today is the one that of radical as a change or an action. 
which is relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something. It's far-reaching or thorough. So when we say we're making a radical decision to follow Jesus, we're fundamentally changing the nature of our lives. It's a decision that affects everything. Everything. It's not a decision of that means I'm going to church on Sunday now, or I like the blessings that God would give me. That seems like a really cool thing. It's a no, I'm fundamentally changing how I live and reorienting my entire life around Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean we all become monks and we just sit at home and pray. Because that was not what Jesus said, it's not what he did. But Jesus, as a carpenter, you know, radically oriented his life around his father. As a child, he radically oriented his life around his father's purposes to the point that his parents had to go and find him because he didn't follow them home from the temple at 12 years of age. Jesus didn't start orienting his life around God at 30 years of age when his ministry began. He ministered for three and a half years out of 30 years of orienting his life towards God. And so for us to be these radical followers, Pete Scazzaro in his book, you know, in talking about this radical decision of being with Jesus, he says that the radical decision is an end to our addiction, not to drugs or alcohol, but to tasks and doing. We must flee from a life of being overcommitted and hurry in order to learn how to be before we do, or in order to learn how to be with Jesus. This decision is grounded in a deep and inner resolve in which we affirm, I must do this, I'd rather die than not go on this journey regardless of the cost. Now, Pete Scazzaro didn't make this up. Jesus, and we're going to look at we're going to look at a lot of scripture today. Okay, so just if you want to get your Bibles, I'm just checking time so that I'm keeping pace on things. We're going to look at a lot of scripture. We will have the scripture up on the screen, I believe. Um, we're going to start in Matthew four, verses eighteen to twenty. And these scriptures are all about Jesus saying, "Come and follow me." Right. So it starts here in Matthew four, eighteen to twenty. Jesus calls his first disciples. So in verse 18, it says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. They literally dropped everything to follow Jesus. And this same invitation and same call goes out over and over to each, in, each of the disciples that, are, that come and are with Jesus. For the sake of time, we won't examine every single one of their calls. But then a little bit later in Matthew, we're going to look at Matthew 18 to 22. And Jesus talks about the cost of following Jesus. And at this point, you know, he's there. He's called some of his disciples. He hasn't called all of them. He's there with these, you know, he's there. He's speaking to a crowd. And uh, when he was there with the crowd, he gave orders to cross. It says here in verse 18, to cross to the other side of the lake. He wasn't drawn to the crowd. He was actually withdrew from them. And when they're in that crowd was a teacher of the law. And that teacher of the law came to him and said, 
teacher, I want to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied to that teacher of the law, well, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The context for that, teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they, they following like the ways of God was this place of, of stature, right? It, it gave them like, ooh, you know, if I'm a teacher of the law, if I'm a Pharisee, a Sadducee, I have this place of honor and authority. I'm revered in society. This teacher of the law likely saw following Jesus as a way to get more honor in society. You know, I'm going to get better things. And Jesus is like, well, actually, Jesus, who understood the motive of everyone's heart, says to the teacher, well... You come and follow me, you, you know, you're not going to have even anywhere to play your head. Then another disciple, please don't worry about her. We're not bothered. <laughs> the, um, Jesus said, bring all the little children to me. You don't need to, they don't need to run away. <laughs> another disciple came to Jesus and said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Man, that's hard, eh? But and it, that's, it sounds harsh. It's like, how could Jesus say that? How is that loving? But there was a radical thing. Jesus knew what he was calling these people to, that the cost of coming and following literally was giving up everything. These were people that were going to have to die for their faith one day. They didn't know that yet. And so... It's like, hey, and Jesus himself, I mean, his family thought he was nuts when he was, they would come and they were trying to like stop him, his family, from what he was doing, not understanding what God had called him to do. So he understood that there was, there's a reality of the call of following Jesus could not be interfered by the fact that the family didn't understand what it was that you were doing or why you were doing it. Then down in Matthew 19, verses 21 to 26, we have Jesus has this encounter with a rich young ruler. And it says here in verse 21, and it talks about this rich young ruler, just to give it context, who comes to Jesus. And he's like, really, he's like, hey, Jesus, what do I need to do to be perfect? What do I need to do to be perfect? And Jesus is like, well, obey the commandments. You know, do, do all these, make sure you've obeyed the commandments, do not murder, don't do this, don't do that. And the rich young ruler's really excited. He's like, I've done all those things. Right? Wow, look at this, I've done all these things. And then Jesus says to him, well, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When this young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Just for a little context there, I, I don't know, as a kid, I was like, how, what does he mean, like, camel, eye of a needle? What the heck is that? You know, it doesn't make any sense. But there was actually a, a, a there was actually a crack in the wall of Jerusalem. It was called. It was was small. It was very difficult to pass through. It was called the Eye of the Needle, and there was no way a camel would fit through that. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and said, "Well, then, who can be saved? Who can be saved?" 
And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. God, all things are possible. And then switch it up, switch the Gospels up. We'll see what Jesus says in Luke 9, 23 and 24. He was talking to his disciples in a crowd and he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. That picking up our cross daily to follow him, it doesn't mean that every day they got crucified, right? I mean, there's that imagery of picking up a cross. They understood that meant. They understood it was an instrument of Roman torture and death. And he's saying, look, you've got to be willing to every day be, 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 you know, die to yourself. Crucify your flesh. And when we talk about our flesh, I'm not talking about just this meat, you know, this, this physical skin and stuff that's all inside me. It's that nature in us that would rather follow the ways of the world than follow the ways of God. Sometimes we see it in Scripture as sinful nature. You know, sometimes it's translated as flesh. But it's that desire that says what I want and what the world says I should have or what is more important than what God says or wants for my life. That is the flesh. And that's the part of us that we've got to crucify. The flesh for us as Christians comes in a number of different ways because it can come as really nasty religious stuff. Or it doesn't have to be nasty. It can seem like really good idea religious stuff, right? But it's where we, you know, there's, it, it comes down to where in anything that we want our way is opposed to God's way in our lives. And that thing of following Jesus is a thing of going, we've got to lay down our ways, our desires, our way of doing things, and pick up God's ways. Our call to follow Jesus is to follow him wholeheartedly, as we talked about last week. It's the rhythms of his life, the way he did things, how he lived. That is following Jesus. Most Christians today live frustrated, powerless lives because we want everything that the world has to offer. We want our own way, and at the same time, we're trying to follow the ways with Jesus. And all that does is pull us apart or leave us frustrated and wondering why this thing doesn't work. And so the church, because they're like, well, you know, yeah, it just, it just it's not working for me. But if, if as as a church, we're not calling people and letting them know there's an actual radical life to following Jesus is totally different than the ways of the world, then they will be frustrated. And they'll live without the empowerment of God and they'll live without Him moving in their lives because it is this life of surrender. It's this life of, of the wrestle of I must learn to die so that He can live through me. And His ways... Because his vision is the only one that counts for this world. And the only way that comes about is by our to follow that. And it started in Eden, right? And God planted Adam and Eve in this most beautiful, amazing place, gave them dominion over the world, gave them everything, and just said, look, just the only thing you can't do is eat from that tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Satan comes and tempts them. And he tempts them by saying, ah, God just tells you not to eat from that tree of knowledge and good and evil because they know that once you do that, well, he knows that once you do that, you'll become like him and he doesn't want you to become like him. So eat from that tree because then you can be independent from God. 
He doesn't say that independent from God piece. That's my add-in. But that's the, that's the implication of what he's saying. Their choice to eat from that tree is to say, ah, I want to be like God. But w- our world tells us that we all should be like God. You know, we deserve it, especially in this world, right? I say our world, our Western world, our first world, our world where we live better than the majority of people in the world. The world where we're blind to the fact that slaves are making our clothes, that are making our chocolate, the world that where the you know, radical injustice is everywhere, but we keep it far enough at a distance that we don't have a clue what's going on. We don't see who made our clothes, so we don't remember, we don't think about who made our clothes. We don't see who made the products or who mined the stuff for the batteries that we we use. We don't see out of the different things. We don't see the suffering. We keep it at a distance for ourselves, plug ourselves in our society. I'm not saying anyone here, uh, but it's the reality. I do it, right? We all do it. The truth is we all do it. We all buy into the things of this world and don't want to think about the horrificness of how much Satan is controlling the world that we live in and how much our own lives are actually affected you know and i'm not saying that to make us feel guilty because it's almost impossible to get away from it unless we're going to walk around naked or find a way to make our own clothes right but this world is unjust it's evil it's awful and we've got to be able to recognize that for what it is i'm going to go on a little tangent because i just am You know, this friend I uh, lost, he's one of the kids that started Life Out. I'm going to try to do it without crying. And when I met him, he was a, I was somewhere probably 13, 14-year-old, little kid. And, uh, you know, for the sake of his family, and all, I'm not going to get in the story, but a horrific story. Grew up in the church, destroyed by decisions that people made, demonically oppressed. I've never seen a kid work so hard trying to help his deaf mom pay the bills, you know, trying to struggle through life, wondering why God had done these things, trying to provide this kid with some hope. Ended up at a young age having a little girl who got taken away by CAF and watched this kid walk an hour to work and back to make money to try to, to, try to prove that he would be worthy of being a dad to this girl. And, t- and try to get her back. And uh, eventually, it, it, the demons just kept overtaking him. And he'd come to church, and he would try as best as he understood. And the truth is that we were powerless to help him, which is what it is. You know, and I don't want to live powerlessly anymore. I hope that the next 20 years of my life I will be that much more radical so that I do have the same power as Jesus to cast the demons out of someone like that. Because it was demonic. And eventually the pain and the knocks and the hardship just overtook and drug addiction kicked in and then his mind broke. And in the last few years person that I had known was gone 
her mind was gone, and the demons had simply taken over. And that's a, that's a thing I saw, right? It's one story of many stories because I chose to work with people for many years that were, were in very rough and bad shape. And, um, you know, that's one story. And the thing is, I share that story because it's real for me right now. But we all probably have different stories like that. Family members, friends, people we've encountered where we've seen the darkness overcome. And that darkness overcoming, when we can become the salt and the light, and when we can truly live radically for God in a way where we actually are empowered and can bring hope in a completely different way. And it's always the wonderful thing as we get older, for those of you who are younger, because you look back to 2020 hindsight, I'm like, man, if I wish I knew what I knew now 20 years ago, I would have been to help this kid a whole lot better. But I only could do what I knew then. I only could do what I knew then. And, uh, but I, my hope for my life and for us as a church is that everyone that comes, or the prophecies over this church, that those that have mental illness would come and they would be set free. That the people that need healing would come and that they would be healed. And God wants that, but it's not, it's not going to happen by us just like hoping that it'll happen one day. It's by our radical decision to be with him and to follow him and do things his way. To do things his way. And so, this follow us that we're called to. So what does it practically look like? Well, right now, it practically looks like, going, hey, how much time do we actually spend with Jesus? Like I said last week, man, if we spent, as, if, if the truth is for most of us, if it's not a lot of time. Our life is not oriented around Jesus. It's not oriented around him. In many cases, it's oriented around religious activity. Right? Because it's our, 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 whatever. Orienting our life around Jesus is learning to hear his voice, learning to be with him, spending time with him. It's just getting, it's, it's like Sabbath that we've talked about. Not as a day off to do chores or do shopping or to catch up on things, but a, a day that we orient our family around Jesus. Where we spend time delighting in him, resting in him, and, and being able to being able to connect with him. It looks like us taking time in our mornings. You know, getting up first thing in the morning and spending time listening to God. Being okay, Lord, I'm gonna be quiet with you. It's hard. It's really hard. If if you start when you start trying that practice, everything else except God is going to come into your mind, and then you'll start realizing how distracted we actually are from Jesus, how completely unconnected and unaware we are of God. Because your work priorities, your family priorities, your stresses, all those things will bombard your mind in that time, but it's actually bombarding your mind all the time. You just are never quiet enough to know. But when we start doing this, when we start being quiet and being with him and allowing him to speak and him to crash in and him to start replacing our worried, anxious, crazy thoughts with his, with his truth, the power of that is unbelievable. Most spiritual warfare is in our minds. Spiritual warfare is not about us praying loudly over someone 
It's about helping someone replace the lies that they have believed about themselves and about the world around them with the truth that they are absolutely loved by God. The truth that God loves them, he cares for them, and they can trust him in every area of their life. But we can't share that if we don't believe that ourselves. God is not interested in our self-sufficiency, and he does not care what we build for him. He doesn't care the amount of worship that we offer him. He doesn't care about the career that we build, the money we build up, or anything along those lines. It's all irrelevant. He cares about our heart connection with him and our ability to be connected to him and love others and to be able to speak about his love to them. That's what matters. That's why what relationship with God is all about. So silence and solitude, being with God, knowing scripture so that his thoughts can be our thoughts. You know, that the wor- his word can be so in us that when the enemy comes with his lies, we have the truth to speak against it. Taking time to reflect on our day and understanding where God's been in our day and where he wasn't. You know, and just simply inviting God. You know, if we're sitting in the morning inviting God into our day. God, I want you to go before me in these meetings. I'm really stressed about them. I, I need you to go before me in these different things. I need you to go before me in this conversation. He will. He wants to. The more we invite him in, the more, the, the more we allow him to be in control, the more we'll see him work. You just got to trust to give over control. And to stop being independent from him, trying to be God ourselves, and to trust him in his ways. And we've got to build the margin in for this into our life. We can't live radically busy, crazy, insane lives that the world tells us we've got to live. We've got to be able to go, we've got limits. You know, there, we, we live from a place of being limited human beings. We only have so much time. We only ha- can give so much. We only can do so much. And our first priority is God and everything else comes in under that. So what we do, God's not going to be impressed with, oh God, I did this for you, this for you, this for you, this for you. And you know, Jesus talks about this. Hey, people coming to him going, hey God, we did this. We cast out this demon. We did that for you. We did this thing. We did this thing. This thing. He's like, but I never knew you. Away from me. I don't know you. What we do is not as important if it doesn't flow out of who we are with him. The awesome thing is, is you can't make yourself perfect, you can't make yourself righteous, you can't, you can't do any of these things. One more scripture. Oh, yeah, and I'll close on that. I won't get to the other part. parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. So if those don't know, the Pharisees were one of the religious sects, they were religious leaders, S-E-C-T. They were like, there was the Pharisees and the Sadducees at the time of Jesus. They were the, the kind of the, the ruling religious people. They were the people people looked up to, and they were pretty proud of who they were and what they did. 
They would wear special uniforms and robes and stuff like that, and people would honor them. They were wealthy, and they were the ones that got to ju- would judge whether you were righteous or unrighteous. And, and you know, they had all their councils and things and would kick people out of the community. They, they, were, they thought pretty highly of themselves. And then there were tax collectors, which, you know, tax collectors, prostitutes, they were the lowest of society. So the Jewish people hated tax collectors because they were collecting taxes for Rome. And most of the time, the tax collectors were corrupt and would take extra for themselves. So they saw them as represent the Jewish culture that Jesus was in, saw these tax, tax collectors as traitors, as people that were working for the enemy and were stealing and oppressing them. They were hated. So... Jesus tells this parable in Luke 18, 9 to 14. He says to some, he he told it to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. To them, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, imagine this, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I'm not like those robbers, those evildoers, or those adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. Pretty pleased with himself. And that tax collector that he was there at the temple with him that he speaks of, his prayer is simply, he stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And uh, then Jesus said, it was that tax collector that went home that day justified before God. Pharisee. The righteousness we think we have is dirty rags before God. When we start getting, when we start becoming proud of how righteous we are, how good we are, how much we pray, how much we worship, how much we read our Bible, we think that somehow that puts us in some special status with God. We're in real trouble. We're in real trouble. When we think we're better than somebody else, we're in trouble. We're all equally dependent on God. This radical decision, this radical life that we're to follow, it's one of giving up our arrogance and our pride and our self-sufficiency and all the things that the world says that we should take honor in. And it's a thing of going, God, I, I am just as dependent and needy of you as everybody else. And because I recognize my need and my dependence on you, I know I have to spend time with you because I have to be connected to you because without you, I can do nothing. I can do nothing. It's a whisper from the devil. Look at how awesome you are. Look at the career you've built, the education you've got. Look at the opportunities you've got. Man, you do things right. Man, why did that other person over there do things wrong? Like, there's something wrong with them. I, I, but... Now I got it together. Just became useless to God. Just became useless. But this radical life of one is, Jesus, you're the one that has the words of life and the way, and without you, I am nothing. There is no life outside of you. 
Nothing I can do or produce is of any value whatsoever. I don't, I don't want to do things on my own. I, I only want, I only want you. And I will live for you. And I give my life to you. And I will allow you to lead me wherever you may go. Take me. I give my life up. I don't want to save my life. I will lose it for you. I don't want what the world has to offer. I want you. It's in that place that we are real disciples of Jesus, that we follow that real thing of following him, and that we're able to become the church that will change this world. It's a replacement that of our thoughts and being from I've got to take care of myself, I've got to earn for myself, I've got to do for myself to Jesus' call that says, do not worry. Do not worry. It's one of serving the mammon and the forces of this world, serving money, be what everything in this world revolves around. Or one of serving God. This world is waiting, as scripture says, for the sons and daughters of God to arise. I believe I'm standing in a room of people that want to be those sons and daughters of God. I believe that to such a time of this, God has called us together so that we will be the salt and the light and that Jesus will reflect us and that the evil of this world will, be take, will, will <laughs> become a little less powerful because we say yes to Jesus. That's our invitation. And uh, may we follow him. Amen. Jimmy DK, I will hand it back to you.